Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O gracious and merciful Father, we pray that you would put false ways far from us and graciously teach us your word, that we would choose the way of faithfulness as you have set your rules before us. Let us cling to the promises which you have revealed through your word, the hope of the gospel, that we would not be put to shame. Lord, help us to run in the way of your commandments as you grow and enlarge our hearts through Christ Jesus. We pray you do these things according to your word by the work of the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is God's holy and errant, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. There is no shortage of self-help books. Books on how to help you do many things. You can find a book on how to make friends, to influence people, books to help you become rich, books to help you lose weight, more money, less weight, books to be able to help you have a better marriage, books that help you start a business, learn a new skill, you name it. You can almost find a book on anything, how to do something. However, a shortage of self-help books that I think would never be able to be founded upon how to be humble. For a book to be able to lose weight, you often want to be able to hear a testimony how someone used a certain system how to be able to lose weight. Well, a book on how to become rich. You want that person to be able to learn from is someone with great wealth in their bank account. A book on a better marriage. You do not want to go to a book on a better marriage and say, here's all the things that I did that did not work. That's not going to be helpful for your marriage. In all of these things, a book on how to be humble might not even exist because for that you must claim that you are humble yourself. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones explained in his commentary that a friend was asking him the other day, how can I be humble? He felt that there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that that Martin Lloyd-Jones had some remedy that could tell that he could tell him do this and that and the other and and then you'll be humble over Martin Lloyd-Jones and turned around and said I have no method no technique I cannot tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know he knows that you soon be proud of that Martin Lloyd-Jones says there's only one way to be humble and that is look to the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something that you can create within yourself. Rather, you can only look to him, Christ, the one who is humble. When you realize who Christ is and what he has done, then you have nothing to do but to bring yourself to your knees and be humbled yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones' remedy was to look to Christ. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't come up with this on his own. He borrowed it or stole it, whatever you call it, from Paul. And Paul has shown us throughout Philippians how he is the example in many cases. In chapter 1, he is filled with how his imprisonment is an example and an encouragement to those in the church in Philippi. But yet when Paul turns to how to be humble, Paul does not point to himself. Although he has much to be able to boast of in his humility, all that he has gone through, but yet Paul's argument turns to Christ's humiliation, mainly in verses 6 to 8. Next time, Lord willing, we'll look at Christ's exaltation in verses 9 to 11. Another way of of explaining Paul's argument here in chapter 2 is he exhorted the the church in Philippi to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul's argument is is pointed to Christ. And his argument is that Christ made himself low, and then God raised him high. Paul, after his long sentence in verses 1 to 4, now begins another long sentence that goes all the way from verse 5 to verse 11. He begins by explaining that have your mind, this mind, among yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's big exhortation in in the church in Philippi is they would be united and not divided. As you see in the beginning of chapter 4, there's two sisters there that are fighting. As Paul wrote in verse 2, complete my joy having the same mind, the same love, the, the full accord of one mind. He wants them to, to be united in their humility. And he points not again to himself, but to Christ in his humility. So what can we learn as we look to Christ 
to be able to understand how to be humble. The first thing that Paul explains in verse 6 is Christ's place in heaven. Christ's place in heaven. He says there in verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. Here Paul begins with, with the Godhead, with Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. To begin with understanding Christ's humiliation, we first must understand Christ's place in heaven from all eternity. And this is where Paul begins. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was there from all eternity. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was in the same nature, same form. The Nicene Creed says that the Son of God is God from God, light from light. True God from true God, or as we read before in our confession of faith, the eternal Son of God of one substance and equal with the Father in the fullness of time became man. Calvin explains in his commentary in Philippians, when it says the form of God here, it means Christ's majesty. For as a man, he is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God and his figure. God the Son from all eternity was not less than God the Father. But there he had the same substance, equal in power and majesty. The author of Hebrews begins and explains that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power. And when we think about Christ's humiliation, we must begin where Christ began. Understanding where Christ was. It is not merely that He was humbled from all beginning, but He humbled Himself. And with that, we then turn to the second portion of verse 6, which can be confusing. And when we start to misunderstand verses like this, what we move to quite quickly as we turn from being orthodox to heretics, moving towards tritheism, that there's three gods rather than one God in three persons. And what do I mean by this? In verse 6 it says that it did not count, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What we need to understand is God the Son is not sitting in eternity from all eternity's time saying, I will never be able to be equal with the Father. Because what that actually says is that God the Father is greater than God the Son. And what that actually says is that there's not three persons in one God, but three gods. One supreme over two others, or one supreme over another. And what you actually have is one main God with subservient gods. ESV notes this in his footnote, or the NIV I think has a more helpful translation. 
which puts it this way, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Simply put, God the Son, the Father and the Spirit, from all eternity did not think, well, Christ is, is, Christ is not sitting there thinking to himself. He's too great to be able to show humility. We need to understand, even in a passage like this that focuses on Christ's condensation, uh, condensation down to earth in human form, we must also understand that the triune God voluntarily condescended down to earth, God the Father showing His love by giving His Son, the Son coming, taking on the form of human flesh, dying on the cross, the Spirit descending, proceeding from the Father and the Son from all eternity, been sent forth to, the, to His people to be able to regenerate their hearts. All of the triune God is, is working in the covenant of grace that God humbles Himself to save His people. That the, God the Father chooses and gives. The Son condescension saves. The Spirit comes and helps. Again, we see this at work in all places throughout the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1 is a great example. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In verse 13, it speaks of the Spirit. In Him you also, when you heard of the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him when we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The, the triune God voluntarily condescends to creation to be able to save those whom the Father chose, the Son died, and the Spirit sealed. Paul specifically is focusing on the second person of the Trinity and in his humiliation and coming in the likeness of men. We must see that God from all eternity, before the foundation of the world began, had chosen, predestined those whom he would save. So Christ did not take advantage of His nature being God and said, I am not going to save the people. But here in the Incarnation, He lowered Himself to move from His place in heaven to be born on earth. And that's what we see here in the second portion of this Scripture, Christ's birth on earth. Or you might say the first portion focuses on God, the Godhead. The second focuses on His manhood. His birth on earth. The Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Paul says, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Your God the Son voluntarily condescends to earth, taking on the form of a servant. But first, we must start with that understanding of the word emptied. Now, what often we think of this word is we often think that God the Son stopped being God 
and he started being man. Again, it is very quickly to go from orthodoxy to heresy. Because what that means is then God changes. God changes and stops being God, even if it is for a time. And he turns a switch, and then the triune God becomes a biune God. Emptied, one commentator explains, is divestiture of position or prestige. I mean, there's many things you could read on, on what this word, the Greek word means, and unpacking that. But Paul actually helps us. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Paul tells us the incarnation. He says two things in this verse. He says he emptied himself by doing what? By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So speaking of of the incarnation, God the Son divested not through taking away his godness to be a man, but he became a man. It's not through subtraction, but through addition. The God the Son's nature became, remains, and he hypostatically is united to Christ the man. Again, you can go to many good uh, creeds, confessions to help us unpack what we, uh, what we understand here. Again, you could turn to question 37 as we read before. Christ the Son became man by taking to himself a true body, a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in, whom, uh, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her yet without sin. Or I really like the Westminster Confession of Faith as it puts it very succinctly and very memorably. What we see here is the, the, the form and likeness. God the Son joined with the man. They say that so two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. It's not merely that they merge together and here they are 50-50. Here they are inseparably joined together, one person, But the Godhead is unaffected and the manhood is unaffected. There's no confusion between the two. And this person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. God the Son, Christ the man, joined together, not only while he was on earth, But as he ascended to heaven with the resurrected human body, and again, we don't have time to be able to look at all the heresies, for there are many in the many centuries that have gone. But ultimately, what they see is fail to understand this union. 
They see some form of increase or decrease of one or the other. 50 50, 100 0, 0 100. It changes, it starts off at zero, merges to a hundred, all these different things. But these two natures are found in one person. They remain united together, fully God, fully man, very God and very man. And it's not merely that Christ left heaven and came to earth becoming a man. But also through his life and his death on earth, he showed his humility. Paul does not turn to Christ's humility in washing the disciples' feet, where this was the lowest form, which was held for the lowest of slaves. It was so low that even Hebrew slaves did not have to wash the feet of others. But Paul turns to Christ's humiliation mainly at the cross, which is what Paul points out, which is our third point tonight. The death on the cross. You might say that Paul focuses on Christ, the Son of God, the Godhead, Christ the man, the manhood, and finally death on the cross, the servanthood, which he says in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. With the connection Paul makes here at the start of verse 8, that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And we need to stop here. Paul says the humility is found in the Godhead united with the manhood in the incarnation. That God would come to earth as man. But here, Paul builds by explaining that here God the Son, the second person from in the Trinity, is not merely hypostatically united to a human being, but for a moment in time, this person of the Trinity is hypostatically united to a dead corpse. The eternal person of God the Son is hypostatically united to a man of a body who is dead. The one who breathed life into dust to become man turns into a man who breathed his last breath. What is more than that? The Christ did not merely just die to be able to show humility. But Paul emphasizes exactly what type of death he died to show his humility. It's not merely that he died, but he died on a cross. Paul shows the great depth of the humility of Christ, of that of the cross. A strange symbol 
for Christians to wear, for Christians to put on churches, to display in their houses. The cross, the crucifixion, is a form of capital punishment for criminals. The worst of criminals. Not merely just for any criminal, but the most heinous of criminals. Roman citizens were not to be crucified because it was too horrific for their citizens to be exposed to such a death. And again, the purpose is not merely that a person would die. Not merely giving someone a death penalty, but ultimately to humiliate them. To have their name placed in shame while causing them an enormous amount of pain. The criminal, even after being whipped and beaten beforehand close to the point of death, would have to carry their own crucifixion device of a hundred pounds up to their place in which they will breathe their last They would then have nails driven into their wrists and their feet, their legs bent slightly. They would be raised, again, not in the corner where no one would be seen, but places where commonly people would walk past to be able to taunt and mock them. Left there for days as they bear their weight on their legs and push their body up so they can finally cause a breath of air to go into their lungs. But eventually, they would die, unable to be able to lift themselves up, either from exhaustion or asphyxiation. Now often, if they didn't die quick enough, a soldier would merely just break or shatter the criminal's legs with an iron club not to be able to put them out of their misery, but just to quicken the process so they can't get any more breath in their lungs. When Paul preaches in Acts chapter 13 to the people of Antioch, he explains that Christ was executed. And this is what we wear. This is what we place on our churches, our logos, our get well soon cards, hang around our house, This image of horrific form of torture inflicts shame, humiliation, and horrendous pain in their last moments on earth. And this is what Paul says Christ found in his humiliation. Not again that he merely came to earth. Not again that he merely uh, hypostatically united himself to a body. But he did so and came in the likeness of men serving even to the point of death on a cross. Again, the the Old Testament sacrificial system was bloody and messy and all of them foreshadow Christ to come. And yet Christ's death is something that we celebrate. Yet I don't think how much we think about what that actually was the pain, the suffering, the humiliation. Even the moments before when he was betrayed, everyone deserted him. 
he turns to the Father and says, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Not merely to be able to drink the cup of the pain of the crucifixion, but the pain of God's wrath poured out in full. Yet he did the will of the Father. I'm sure with his trembling hand, he raised the cup of wine as he instituted the Lord's Supper and said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my pain. This is my humiliation. And yet the cross is something that has become sterile in our conversations. We use this word and terminology in some way, oh, this is my cross to bear. And yet Paul calls us to have this mind like Christ. To live humbly and walk before the Lord. This image of gruesome death that Christ died. And Christ showed His humility not by merely coming man, but dying on the cross. This is why Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, For the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are lost, the cross is foolishness. Yet to us, it is the excellent news of the gospel, the saving work, the power of God. That we should never become too familiar with this understanding of the cross that becomes some form of sterile, painless death. We should always remember that Christ suffered this death for His people. We should abhor the sin that separated us from God and placed Christ on this cross. But we should also have full gratitude and hearts of thanksgiving that great price paid to be able to save us from our sin and unite us to God. As Isaac Watts famously wrote in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing. So divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Here Paul points and says, how do you find humility? Look to Christ. Look to what Christ did for you. Have that mind amongst yourselves, which is only yours in Christ Jesus. What mind should we have? That mind which Christ showed in the humiliation and death on the cross. And sometimes when you read a verse, you cannot say amen. You have to say ouch. When we think about Paul's main point in this section on unity, and he says unity comes through humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Well, what does that look like? Look to Christ on the cross. 
In humility, count others more significant than others. What does that look like? Look to Christ on the cross. How do we look to our, not to our, only to our own interest, but the interest of others? Look to Christ on the cross. Who do we look to? We look not to others, even the most perfect example on this earth. We look to Christ and Christ alone. A.W. Tozer says, because Christ Jesus came to the world clothed in humility, we will always be found among those who are clothed with humility. He will be found among the humble people. Or as John Calvin said, Nothing but the pure knowledge of God can teach us humility. You want to know how to be humble? We can't write a book on it. Christ has shown us through His book. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and most merciful Father, we give You thanks and praise for even difficult verses like this that are not difficult to understand but difficult to apply to our lives. Lord, for we are prone to be able to leave, follow our own hearts, our own desires, to look to our own interests, to count ourselves more significant than we ought. But yet, Lord, you have called us to live a life of humility, not merely following the most humble man in our church or that we know, but to follow the example of Christ Jesus in his humiliation and shame and death on the cross. Help us, Lord Jesus. For we know that we cannot do this of our own accord, but only through your Spirit. Empower us to walk this life of humility. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.